tonight. Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as you're most likely well aware, uh, page 5 of your worship guide, there's a there's space to take notes, there's an outline, there's sermon titles, some reflection questions. Uh, please make use of that if that helps you stay engaged and attentive to the Word. Uh, that's the main reason for this portion of the worship service is just to give um, you know, 30, 40 minutes of unhurried, uh, very focused time to what God is saying to us because the Word is God speaking to us. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask that you stand. Uh, we stand here at ECPC for the reading of the Word, um, not because it's this you know, religious duty or anything, but because we're just trying to engage our whole being and remind ourselves that um, when we read Scripture, it's, it's God uh, revealing his love to us and, and loving instructions to us. So with that in mind, we're going to pick up in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul and Timothy write, and ultimately God reveals and communicates to us, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But we, with toil and labor, worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give, in you, give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, and, and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed as a brother. You may be seated, and I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, very simply... And sincerely, we want to tell you thank you for not giving up on us. The fact that we have your word means that you persist in communicating with us. You could have walked away. You could have given us the cold shoulder. Uh, you could completely cut ties with us. And who could blame you? We are, we are stubborn. We are obstinate. We're selfish. And yet, just as uh, John was communicating to us in that Bible study at UNCC, the, the heart of God, the expressed mission of Jesus is to seek and save the lost. Uh, we don't come in here pretending to be healthy or having the formulas for success and life all figured out. We come in here needy. Um, and right now, I get to be one beggar telling a room full of beggars um, about the bread of God, the, the true um, manna from heaven which is found in Christ alone. So we ask, God, that you would illuminate this for us, give us eyes that really capture and see what you're showing us, and that we would take it to heart. We ask for you to author that in us this morning. So uh, let's talk about dog lovers. I know there's a lot of dog lovers in the room. Some of you are cat lovers. I don't understand why, but I know you exist. Well, Lord forbid some of you are perhaps snake lovers. We weren't, we're not even going to touch that. Snakes are the devil. Um, that's all I'm going to say. But dogs, they're amazing. 
Our family is pro-dog. We've had multiple dogs. And uh, we obtained our dogs as puppies. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are, are aware of this, that puppies are a lot of work. You, you, you say, Tyler, you got your dogs as puppies? I mean, why would you inflict yourself with such a hassle? S- such rigorous work goes into, you know, training puppies and making sure they're doing what they need to do outside and not inside. And, you know, they, they yap and they whine. And, you know, even after dogs grow out of the puppy phase, uh, I think we're all aware of this, but dogs, they still require a lot of care and a lot of attention. I mean, every day you have to feed your dog. And if you go out of town, you have to find someone to come to your house and make sure your dog is cared for. You have to groom your dog, you know, at least some minimal amount of grooming, right? Washing your dog on some regular basis. You have to take your dogs on walk, walks. Sometimes you have to pick up their business after, you know, after they do that, on the walk. And that's pretty humiliating for humans, but we do that. And uh, you have to take them for regular checkups. These aren't cheap. You have to go to the vet pay the vet money, and then you are going to be told by your vet that your, your dog needs heartworm medication, and you're going to have to administer that, and it's, you know, it's pretty rigorous. And so again, um, you're, you're wondering why. Why would you do this? I mean, you, you elect to have a dog. You choose this of your own volition. Why would you inflict yourself with all of that hard work? And the answer is really simple. Joy. It's because you, you love your pet. You, you love, if you have a dog, you love your dog. And that's how it is with anything we really love. If, if you really love something and it's the joy set before you, uh, there's going to be a lot of hard work involved with that thing that you, you love. And when you love something, you want to surround yourself with people who sincerely love that same thing. And conversely, you're going to avoid posers, people who pretend to love that thing. They, they talk the talk but they don't actually do the hard work. They don't back up their boastful love in this thing with rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty and doing the hard work that's involved with what it means to love that thing. And that's what's being talked about here uh, in the final scene or, or portion of this letter from Silas, Timothy, and Paul to the church in Thessalonica. They're saying, we are, are admonishing you, we're exhorting you to work hard. And part of that hard work, part of that exhortation is to avoid the people who say they love Jesus, but they don't actually work hard. They they don't actually live the life, the rigorous life of being a disciple of Jesus. And so in verse 6, notice again what it says in verse 6. The authors of this letter say, keep away from the brother who is walking in idleness. And they are not walking in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So, again, let's think about dogs for a second. Let's say you you have a dog and you go to a dog park, okay? And then a person shows up in this dog context where all these dog lovers get together to play with their dogs, play fetch with their dogs, communicate with other people who love their dogs. And then a person shows up with a dog, and this dog has clearly been neglected. This dog is mangy. This dog is emaciated. This dog doesn't have a leash. It doesn't even have a collar. It's running around biting other dogs. And the, the owner of this dog... He comes along and he says to you, you know, I'm not legalistic. I'm a laid-back dog owner. I'm not all uptight about the traditions and protocols of caring for dogs. You know, I'm not into the rules. I'm carefree. I I have this sloppy agape approach to the way I love a person. As someone who cares for your pet, you would be wise to steer clear of them. Because though they profess to love their dog, the, the evidence suggests that they don't. In fact, you might call doggy DSS on this person. 
if there is such a thing, and say, hey, this person says they, they love their pet, but I don't really see the evidence of that. Now, when you truly love something, what, what you're going to want to do is work really hard to cultivate a life of, of doing this thing you love more and more. And then a big part of that is you're going to want to surround yourself with people who truly are passionate. And it's manifest. It's evident that they are passionate about the same thing that you love. So here's another example. Kids. Kids are a lot of work. Amen? Yeah, amen. We're Presbyterians. We can say amen when we hear something true. Kids are a lot of work. A lot of time, energy, money goes into your kids. Here's the thing. When people have kids, they do that of their own volition, right? We, we want kids, right? Sometimes kids just sort of, oops, we have kids. But most of the time, people are, are like really, really interested in having these things called kids. And then they hang out with other people who have kids, right? There are these communities of, of parents and they spur each other on to care for their kids and even have more and more kids. But let's really, let's really do the math on this. Kids are hard work. Let's break it down. I've heard, I've never been pregnant, but I've heard that being pregnant is no picnic. It's kind of uncomfortable. I've also, um, because I've never been pregnant, I've never given birth to a child, but I've heard that that's a tad uncomfortable as well. That that's kind of painful. It's a lot of work that goes into that. And uh, I don't want to detract from the hard work of that, but that's just the beginning. Because then these creatures, these little babies, once they come out of the womb and they're in the world, well, now they make their demands at all hours of the day, right? Two in the morning, they can demand to be consoled, fed, right? right? Anything they want. You're at their beck and call. You're their slave. And then they get a little older and they become toddlers. And they decide they're going to start pushing some boundaries, and if they don't get their way, they're going to throw these, these things called tantrums. And you're going to have to like navigate all of that. And that's really rigorous. And then they're going to get a little older and they're going to go to this place called school. And you have to every night or every morning pack a lunch for them to take to school. And you have to drive them to school. And you have to pick them up from school. And gas ain't cheap. It's a lot of work. And then they're going to hit this stage of life called adolescence. You've heard of this? Adolescence? It's like this angsty, dramatic, everybody's confused, what is happening phase of life, but you've got to navigate that phase of life. And then they go to this place called college, which is expensive, and you have to figure out a way to save up for that. And they've got to go to college. And then they become adults, and perhaps they move back in with you. So you're right back into the parenting mode, failure to launch. Or they have kids of their own, and they need a break, so they drop them off with you, and you're right back in the diaper changing phase. It's this vicious cycle. It's a lot of work. What if you had somebody come to you, you know, a friend, a fellow parent, and they said, you know, I'm not really into the traditions of parenting, right? All the protocols of parenting. You know, kids are resourceful. They're resilient. They'll figure it out. We don't need, we don't really need to think too strenuously about parenting. Well, you would look at this person and, and, and you'd say, well, I, I get it. I get it. I'm tired too. But you're a bad influence. Don't, don't come along and say, hey, let's be lazy about parenting. Come along and, and encourage me and help me to enter in and deeply invest in the worthwhile hard work that is involved in this, this calling in life. And it's not just about avoiding, you know, the bad influence, the person who will sort of take you away from the hard work involved in the thing you love, but it's about your joy. If you hang around people who are idle and lazy when it comes to this thing that you love, they are actually detracting from the joy that you can have in, in doing that thing and in, in excelling more and more in, in pursuing that thing that you love. This is how the Bible talks about hard work. We need to be really clear about this. It's never legalism. Jesus interacted with people who worked really hard. They were called Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And he never commended their motivation because they were legalistic, right? They were tithing and dressing up fancy and doing these long, lofty-sounding prayers. And Jesus said, they're not doing that as the joy set before them. They're doing that as, as a religious duty because they think they get some kind of credit in the sight of God for these things that they do. But Jesus and, and the followers of Jesus, like Paul say, we... We want to pursue the kingdom of God and all the hard work that comes with that as the joy set before us. Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, I want to work with you for your joy, which leads to this next point, imitating the active. It's not primarily about avoiding the inactive or the lazy. More primarily, it's about seeking people who will make you more active. And more invested in the thing that is really worth being invested in. The thing that you love. So you see in verse 7 and verse 9, Silas, Timothy, and Paul say, You should imitate us. When we were there with y'all in Thessalonica, we were not idle. We were not lazy. We toiled. Not just during the day, but oftentimes during the night. In verse 9 they say, We were setting an example for you. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Of course, Jesus does some definitive work that, that we could never perfectly emulate, right? Because he is the Savior. He's the only sinless, perfect person to have ever existed. So he's going to fulfill all righteousness for you, and you're not going to be able to precisely mimic that. But he is laying down an example for you. And so, for instance, in John chapter 4, Jesus says, when I think about the kingdom of God, the, the work and the will of my Father, you know how I think about it? He says, I think about it as my food. All of the hard work that goes into doing the will of God, Jesus says, that's my joy. That's my food. It's a brilliant way to talk about it because y'all love food, don't you? I mean, you, you don't ever eat food and think, well, you know, I have to do this. This is drudgery. This is my duty. And someone's got to eat this food. So I guess I'll be the responsible one and I'll, and I'll do this. Hopefully someone watches, they see this, and they give me credit. No, if, if there's food, if you're like me, you eat even when you're not hungry. You just like to eat. You like the taste of food. Food's amazing, right? And Jesus says, that's the paradigm of hard work in the kingdom of God. It's, it's the joy set before you. So think about food. You're always working for food. Some of you have gardens, so you grow your own food. All of us have to go to the, the store. We go to the grocery store. We shop for food. That takes time. Then we bring that food home, and we got to put it all away. Some of it goes in the pantry. Some of it goes in the freezer. Other groceries go in the refrigerator, so you got to put it all away. And then you're going to prepare that food at some point. Right? You're going you're gonna to heat it up, you're going you're gonna to cook the food, and then you're going to sit down and enjoy the food. You're going to invite other people into your home to enjoy it with you. You're going to share fellowship over this food, and then you're going to have to do the dishes. You're going to have to clean up. And we do this multiple times a day, every day. And so if I came to you and I said, you know, you're obsessed with food. You've gone overboard with food. You eat food every year. Every year of your life you've eaten food. Just take a year off. Or what about a month? What about just a week? Just don't eat food for a week because you, you've, you've become obsessed, you know? And maybe I accuse you of being legalistic. You're, you're, so, you're so routine in your eating of food. Uh, it, it's, it's just a little, bit, it's a, it's a little bit overwhelming for me to watch how much you eat. You'd say, you'd say I refuse to be ashamed of my love for food. I, I love the process of you know, preparing food, sharing food with people, digesting food. It's all, it's wonderful. I'm not going to stop. 
I'm not going to be ashamed of all this hard work that goes into this, this paradigm of food. And speaking of food, in verse 10, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they say something that probably registers with us as really kind of harsh. They say, if you don't work, here's the rule, if someone's not willing to work, then they don't eat. And that might sound abusive to you. That might sound inappropriate and severe. But we have to understand that true love is, is intense. True love, true joy, invariably, they are intense realities. This, this is true of anything. So y'all know that I love to watch films and documentaries, and then I stand up here and I tell you that you need to watch these films and documentaries as well. So I'm about to do that to you again. There was a film that came out in 2021 called CODA, C-O-D-A. Some of you have seen this film and you know it's amazing. CODA actually stands for Children of Deaf Adults. In fact, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay, you, a lot of you have work to do later today. This is what you have to do. You have to go home and watch CODA. I don't, is it on Apple TV? I, it's up to you. You have to figure it out. You have to find it. Um, so this, this film tells the story of this girl named Ruby. Ruby is the child of deaf parents. Her mom and her dad, they are deaf, and her, her brother's deaf, and they have this small little fishing business. And she's the only one in her family who can hear. So she has to translate for her, her family because their like, family business is reliant on her ability to translate for them. So she's got a full plate. She's got a lot of responsibilities. Well, in the film, you come to find that Ruby loves to sing. She's just got this passion for singing. And then there is this character, this music teacher at the high school named Mr. Villalobos. He's my favorite character in the film. And uh, Ruby, she's really not even sure she wants to, like, join the, the glee club or whatever they call the singing group at her school. But, but she shows up one day, and, you know, it's high school, and we're all, we're all very aware of how we're being perceived. We're afraid of how we might be perceived, and we're embarrassed to get up in front of people. But Mr. Villalobos, he's having none of this. He's like, look, I don't care how full your plate is. I don't care if you're embarrassed. You need to get up here in front of the class, and we need to, we need to, we need to test and see you know, how in love with singing you are, right? So it starts with these embarrassing breathing exercises. And again, picture this in front of her classmates. This is mortifying for a high school student. So Mr. Villalobos invites Ruby up, and he says, okay, breathing exercises, let's do this. Little dog, <laughs> and she, she's not doing it. He's like, what? Are you embarrassed? <laughs> Come on! Okay, little dog, <laughs> a medium dog, <laughs> big dog, <laughs> and he makes her do that in front of the class. And y'all have been in high school, and you're imagining, what if my music teacher made me do that? And you'd, you'd bring them up on abuse charges. That's what you'd do. That's mortifying. You do, you do not make a hard work. And it is inescapably intense. If you want to sing, this is what's involved. Well, as, thing goes on, as, as the story develops, you realize she has a gift for singing. And Mr. Villalobos says, I'm going to give you personal lessons. But you've got to show up at my house on these days at these times, and you cannot be late. I won't cut you any slack. I don't care if you have other responsibilities. Where there's a will, there's a way. You show up in a punctual way to do these practice lessons. And it seems harsh. There are times where I'm watching in the film and I'm like, Mr. Villalobos, you need to cut her some slack. And maybe he does, but the point is, when you love something, you will invite people who will push you and do what perhaps even feels harsh or severe so that you can do more of the thing that you claim to love. And that's what Jesus is like. That's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are like. They're saying, if you're not going to work, you're not going to eat. 
And that's not legalism. And that's not unloving. That is love. Because true love and true joy is intense. It's also intense because the alternative is, is dangerous. If, if you're allowed to be lazy, look what it says in verse 11. It's not just that you're sitting around doing nothing. With, with all this idleness and all this free time, what, what gets inside of people? And we see all kinds of examples of this. If you don't have anything to do, you just have too much free time, what do you end up doing? You become a busybody. Here's another movie you should watch if you haven't already watched it, The Help. If you, if you don't work hard, you know who you are going to become? Hilly Holbrook from The Help. You're going to become a gossip, a judgmental, condescending person who goes around putting your nose in everybody else's business because you've got nothing better to do. And that's toxic. That is a danger. And these, these missionaries are saying, we want to keep you from becoming busybodies because that's good for no one. That is so unhealthy. So let me give us some application points before we move on to the final uh, point of this outline. Number one, cut off your gossipy friends. Let me say this again. You have certain friends. We all dabble in gossip, and I'm not commending that. But you know that one friend who's always, did you hear about so-and-so? And they all, I'm concerned for so-and-so. They're busybodies. They're gossips. They're just all about you know, what, what the social sphere is like, and they're just keeping tabs on everybody. Don't be friends with them. Cut them off. Have nothing to do with them. Now, look, if they say, hey, can we get coffee? Sure, maybe time to time. But you're always wanting to steer the conversation toward, can we have a constructive conversation as opposed to a gossipy conversation? Have nothing to do with them. That's what the Bible says. Sounds harsh. But you at least need to wrestle with that is a potential application of this passage. On a joyful note, another application is you need to ask someone worthy of imitation to mentor you. You need to identify someone who has a strong work ethic, and it's a joy-oriented, love-motivated work ethic. They work hard as a follower of Christ, serving others, because that's the example of Jesus. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he says, I did this to serve you, but also to set an example for you. And you notice, there's someone else in this room that you've noticed, they love to serve other people. They, they, they fight to, to be in a position of the servant, right? They, they believe Jesus when he says, the greatest among you is the one who serves. Go to that person and say, I want to get together with you at a minimum once a month for one or two hours. And I, and I want to just get as much of your influence in my life. I want your service-oriented, joy-motivated life to rub off on me because your life is worthy of imitation, and I need that in my life. Now, here's the question. What if people don't want to buy into this? They don't want to buy into the joy paradigm of following. You're supposed to encourage the unwilling. It says, encourage people to work quietly and earn their own living never growing weary of doing good. And then a part of this encouragement, a dimension of the encouragement, is if anyone is not willing to obey this command, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them, so that what? What's, what's one of the short-term goals? So that they may be ashamed. And again, this probably hits you as unloving. You're at least thinking, you know, if I were writing this letter, I wouldn't have phrased it that way. That sounds harsh. You know, 
to say one of our goals, not, not the end-all, be-all goal, but one of my goals is to make sure that you feel ashamed for being lazy, that seems antithetical to encouragement. I thought we're supposed to be encouraging these people, Silas, Timothy, Paul. Why, why would we want them to be ashamed? Well, think about it like this. We're in summer, right? Officially, I don't know what the exact date on the calendar says summer, but it's summer, okay? Family beach trips are, are coming up, okay? So imagine this. You're going to the beach with your family. And to an extent, this is appropriate. You're, you're on vacation, right? You're in vacation mode. So it's not about work. And to an extent, that's right. Relax. Just relax. Especially you really, really OCD people, workaholic people who can never stop working. You need to relax, okay? But I think we can all agree, even on vacation, even at the laid-back family beach trip, there's still work to do. For example, we, we're going to carry all this stuff out to the beach. And then we got to carry it all back after we're hot and sandy and we're hungry and we just want to get back. If you head back to the beach house and you're just like carrying your flip-flops and you get halfway back to the house and you're like, you know, I feel a little guilty. Good! Good! <laughs> You should feel guilty. Your dad probably. He's out there wrangling all the chairs and trying to get everything. Please feel a little bit ashamed. And then take that and decide, you know, I should probably go back and pick up a few items. I'm being selfish. Right? If, if you just had a wonderful meal, right? Getting together with your family and your friends at the beach. This is awesome. And you have this meal. And then, well, you know, it's been a big day. I got a lot of vitamin D, absorbed a lot of sun rays, and feeling tired. I'm just going to go take it easy. And you sit down on the couch. Maybe you pour yourself a drink. You're relaxing. And then you realize that, like, one person, just, just one person by themselves is doing all those dishes. And you're like, I feel a little guilty. Good. Good. I hope you feel a little ashamed of yourself. You selfish, lazy person. Get off the couch. Go help. Right? Now, if you have a schedule, like, it's their turn to do dishes, fine. Everybody needs to pull their weight. But if, if you're the person who's kind of like standing around not doing stuff and you feel a little ashamed of yourself, good. I'm not saying you live in shame. Silas, Timothy, and Paul are not saying you should forever feel shame. They're saying leverage these momentary sensations of shame to, to provoke you, to participate in the, the realities of the work that is all around us. And again, perhaps... Even having explained that to some extent, perhaps this sounds harsh. But think about it like this. Because ultimately, anything we read in Scripture is, is deeply, essentially relational. Okay, it's, it's, it's not a bad way to think of the Bible to say it is a love letter from our husband. right? From God to us. So, so imagine it like this. Picture a dating couple. And this happens a lot, so it shouldn't be hard to imagine. One member of this relationship is cool with the dating dynamic. They, they think, you know, dating's fun. Dating is, keep it casual, right? No, no big marriage commitment. I like the dating phase. But the other member of this relationship wants a more intense commitment. They want the until we die marriage commitment. At some point, the person who wants marriage will perhaps say to the other person, either we get married or we're breaking up. Now, does that sound harsh? Is it, does it sound like they're treating this other person as an enemy, threatening them with this ultimatum? No. They're encouraging them because they love them. They're saying the, the intensity 
that I want relationally, this marriage thing that I'm wired to want, and whether you're willing to admit it, I bet you're wired to want it as well. You're just afraid of commitment. This is something I have to kind of push you on. And so at the risk of sounding harsh, we're either going to go down this marriage path or we're done. And maybe that sounds severe, but that's at the heart of true love. That's what this passage is saying. You are not regarding this person as an enemy because, you know, you're confronting their laziness. But you're loving them and warning them as a family member, as a brother or a sister in Christ. And that's precisely the kind of love that God wants to convey to us all over Scripture. And really, dramatically, that's what he's conveying to us in this meal. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. And you have to recognize that this meal, the bread and the wine, it's, it's a sign and seal of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So at a minimum, even if you're not a Christian, you have to recognize that that's intense. This is an intense thing that we're about to remember and partake of, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And we're not just going to look at it. We are going to take it, we're going to receive it. We're going to say, I want that to get inside of me. Because see, God says a lukewarm or lethargic relationship with God is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Number one, because he's God. He, he can't be lukewarm. God is intense, right? It's the famous dialogue between the Pavinci children and, and the beavers, right? Is, is, is God domesticatable? Is, is Aslan a safe lion? No. Or what? Whoever said anything about safe? He's, he's good. He's infinitely good. But he's intense. He's God. And God says, you cannot be lukewarm. You cannot be lethargic about this relationship. And number two, God says, it's not just that I'm a deity. It's that I insist on being your husband. So it's not just general intensity it's the intimacy of marriage and as any married couple will tell you marriage takes a lot of work it's not like you just meet your soulmate and it's just easy it's just you know victory lap after victory lap it's just easy because your soulmates no you find the love of your life you're gonna put a lot of time and energy and hard work into cultivating a robust healthy marriage and God says that's the dynamic between you and me and as you come to this meal, you, you are in inescapably beholding. Like you are graphically looking at and partaking of what God paid for this relationship to be possible. Just really simply put, but this is so important that we grasp this. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we are agreeing that it cost the life, the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus in order for us to have a relationship with God. And that is intense. And then in addition to that, this meal invites us to imitate that investment. Jesus very clearly says, look, you're invited to partake of my grace and then you become a steward of my grace. You start to look like me. So you pick up your cross, you follow me. I lay down my life for my friends. You lay down your life. I came to serve, not be served. So now you serve instead of being served. And so as you come to this meal, you have to examine yourself. You have to ask yourself, do I want to be loved like this? Because this is an intense love. You know, the idea that we want to be loved, we, we all kind of think, yeah, I want to be loved. But then we have, we have a, a line that we, we don't want people to cross. Because sometimes you get loved in a way that's sort of too intense. And God says, well, that's the only way I know how to love you. Because I'm God. So you have to ask yourself, do you want to be loved like this? 
God will stop at nothing to pursue you and to purchase you and to have you irrevocably in his life for all eternity. And if you come to this table, you're saying, I want that. I want to be pursued by God. And I want him to work on me. I want him to sanctify me. I want him to mold me and shape me to look more and more like Jesus. And of course, if you don't believe in that love or, or you want to have autonomy over your life and you don't want that love to invade and encroach on your preferences, then you would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. This would be a really dangerous thing for you to partake of if you don't really want the love of God with all of its intensity to take over your life. So that's the question you have to wrestle with before you come to this meal. Really practically speaking, let me end with this. Think about the Apostle Paul. Earlier I told you Paul says that his paradigm for work was the joy set before him, to work hard for the kingdom of God. And if you read through the book of Acts as an example, you see Paul, I mean, his schedule is really rigorous. He's traveling all over, risking his life, suffering imprisonment and shipwreck and all kinds of hostilities because he loves the gospel. It's like this burning inside of him. He's compelled to take the love of God to all these various people groups all over the known world. But you know, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, the physician Luke, uh, you know because of that that Paul had an entourage. Like he had people who, who followed him around. And they were, they were invited to enter that same joyful, hard work paradigm of Paul. And he would want to work with them for their joy. So really do the math on this. If you, if you follow Jesus or if you follow hardcore disciples like Paul, there's only one of two ways to think about this. When you really look at the practical uh, scenarios that guys like Paul were in, it's either judgment or it's joy. You, you look at Paul's life, if you're following him around, you're imitating him, you're either saying, I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to get whipped. I don't want these hostile groups to follow me around and persecute me. That sounds like judgment. Well, yeah, if you don't love Jesus, it is. That, that's just suffering and you want nothing to do with it. But if you love it, it's the joy set before you. If you love it, that means when you're thrown into prison, you're right there with Silas and Paul and you're singing hymns and you're praising God and you're, you're rejoicing because you were counted worthy to suffer for the kingdom of God. And so really, practically speaking, that's what this hard work, the accomplished hard work of Christ and how you're going to be a conduit of that, how you're going to be enabled and encouraged to embody that in your everyday life. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we ask that you would cause us to truly savor you. I mean, we're about to come to a meal. And so it's appropriate that we wouldn't just do this in a perfunctory way. We would come excited. We would come with taste buds. We would come ready to savor the love and the mercy that is found in Christ alone. And then as we digest this news that we have been loved like this, I pray that we would love in a, in a similar kind of way. Because we have been so profoundly loved I pray that you would compel us to love like we've been loved and to forgive like we've been forgiven. And that's hard. That's a lot of hard work. But you are powerful. You are able and, and you are enthusiastically willing to cultivate that in us. And so we pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which you...